0: Um, so um, we are now up to second Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, in our series of talks um, and the subject that we're going to focus on today uh, which you might have seen in the program is the issue of deception uh, deception and uh, what we can do to ensure that we are not deceived before we start I'd just like to say that the that um, the the, the, the the problem, as some people might um, see it, that we have when we work our way through the whole book of the Bible, um, like we're doing with Thessalonians, is that we can't easily dodge the, uh, the passages that we don't find very uplifting. Um, and I know I've said this before about other passages that we've looked at in our ministry programmes, but on the face of it, this isn't a very uplifting passage. But all I'd ask is that uh, you... Try to bear with me because there are some encouraging things that we can take away at, um, at the end. Before I read the passage, I would also just like to make the point that this isn't a very easy passage to understand and that there are all sorts of different views about what sections of it, of it really mean. And, and one reason um, for that is because the letter is actually a response to misunderstandings Arising from Paul's oral teaching. And we don't know much of what Paul said to the church previously, which makes it more difficult to understand when he's trying to clarify what he said earlier. And it's true, of course, that in all areas of prophecy, there's also a deliberate vagueness where God, in his wisdom, has chosen to hide some of the detail from us, things which are only to be ve- revealed um, fully in their proper time. So, of course, if we try to work out things that God doesn't want us to know yet, we're always going to struggle with that, aren't we? Anyway, we'll, we'll read the passage now, and then I'm going to try and pick out um, the main things that we, that we can be sure about. So, it's Second uh, Thessalonians, and it's chapter 2, and our passage is the first 12 verses. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, teaching asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds him back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness, uh, all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will be, believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned to have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. I try to avoid reading large sections of Revelation because it kind of just blows my mind with that kind of stuff. So you go into the epistles and think you're in safe ground and then you find it all over again. It's hard stuff to get through, isn't it? Let's have a little look at what we can find. So we can see in verses 1 and 2 that the big issue was still a misunderstanding about when the Lord Jesus was going to return. Misunderstandings which were being exacerbated by the teachings of others, and probably because the persecutions that they were suffering um, were being seen as a sign of the end times. So Paul says at the beginning of verse 3 that he doesn't want them to be deceived about any of this. Verse 2 uh highlights the possible consequences of these deceptions. He talks about saints becoming unsettled or alarmed. What we don't see here in this passage or anywhere else in Scripture is anything which says that believers can be deceived in such a way and lose their faith perhaps to such an extent that we can never lose our salvation once we've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our saviour. Eternal security is not in view here. I think it's important that we say that. But the appeal for them not to be deceived is still an important one for us as much as it was for the Thessalonians. Because if we allow ourselves to be deceived, if we let ourselves be led off in the wrong direction, we can we can lose our confidence in what the Lord has done for us, we can lose the joy and assurance of the hope that we have in Christ and and our lives of service. And all the blessings that we can enjoy as part of that service, our lives of service can be completely ruined. And Paul's uh, response is basically to remind them of what he'd already told them. You see that in verse five? He wanted them to remember that teaching. Now, you might notice there's a similarity there with the teachings of the Lord Jesus in Mark 13. Jesus is talking about future events, just like Paul is here, and Jesus warned the people about the risk of deception from false teaching. The specific point that the Lord Jesus and Paul are each making is that there are certain things which must happen first before the return of the Lord. And as much as the Thessalonians were we're, we're, we're suffering and there are believers in the world today who must, who, who are going through the most terrible persecutions, but as much as that might be happening, um, they should have been able to see that the things that must happen first just had not happened yet, so they shouldn't have been deceived. Now in the passage, I think this is where, as we go on, we get into a little bit of difficulty if we wanted to be sure about what all of these things are talking about. Uh, and the, there are several, many actually, um, interpretations of the verses um, which, which, which follow. Um, who is the man of lawlessness? What will the rebellion look like? What is this temple that he'll self, set himself up in? Certainly not the temple that existed in the days of the Lord Jesus. That was destroyed. And actually, as you know, there is no Jewish temple on the original temple site um, as we speak. Only, um, only um, a mosque and a shrine to Islam. So whatever the temple is that's being spoken of, whether it's a new temple that will be rebuilt, we, we, we just don't know. We don't know what um, a lot of this means. But there are key points that we can be very sure about. Firstly, in verse 3, we can see that there will come a time when there will be a clear, open rebellion against God. And this rebellion will be accompanied by a revealing of the one called the man of lawlessness, uh, sometimes thought to be um, the Antichrist. That's the first point: there will come a definite time when this will happen. Second, in verse four, it talks about the leader of this rebellion who will put himself in some way in the place of God. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he'll he'll claim to be a god. Um, he could be a very secular type of person if it is a person, but he will exalt himself and demand the kind of allegiance that people normally show to. Whoever that they, they they previously worshipped. Thirdly, um, verse six, uh, it refers to something holding back this man of lawlessness. Again, we can only speculate about what that that might be. Um, many people think it's the Holy Spirit. Um, some say it might be the influence of the church. Some say it could even be the governments of the world that God has put in place to rule on his behalf. But whatever it is, we can be sure that that this, whatever is restraining this satanic influence, and that's how verse 9 describes um, him, it will be in place until the appointed time. It will only be taken away when God Decrease it now let's just stay with that last point for a moment paul is saying that the lawless one the man of lawlessness the antichrist or whoever or whatever is being referred to here is currently being restrained currently being restrained or was being restrained in the days that paul wrote this letter and so we can be sure that he or it is already active in the world restrained but still active and I think we get that confirmed in verse seven don't we where it says that the power of lawlessness is already at work although until it's revealed more fully it's a secret power it goes on in the background it's sneaky it's underground it hasn't stood up and made itself known for what it is yet So what he's talking about in verse seven is a power or an influence which has already started. um, And it's possibly not by the person that Paul's referring to as a man of lawlessness. Um, If that's a specific person, it's something in the future. But currently, it's other people or agencies who are trying to do the same thing, trying to promote sin and undermine Christianity. And we get this corroborated in other areas of scripture. If you look, um, in First um, John chapter 2, there's a verse that says um, that an antichrist is coming. Um, and, and John does seem to be referring to a specific person. Although, as I say, I don't think we can be completely sure about that. An antichrist is coming. But he also says that many antichrists have already come. So, again... We know there is already a satanic influence at work in the world today, which means, as I said at the beginning, the appeal to not be deceived is relevant to us, isn't it? I think it's worth pausing here just to test that suggestion, because I know it's easy for you know, Christian preachers um, to talk about the devil at work, and you know a lot of people like to be a lot more optimistic about there's lots of good in the world as well. Uh, Maybe the satanic influence is something way off in the future and we shouldn't get overexcited just because people do things that we don't like and blame it all on Satan. Let's just test the suggestion then. Is there any evidence for the work of antichrists in the world today and in the history of the world as we know it? Or put it another way, can we see any anti-God rebellious characteristics? Let me start off in scripture We know that part of the motive for the original sin was Adam and Eve being persuaded by Satan. Um, Remember, the, the temptation for eating the forbidden fruit was not only that they wouldn't die, as God had said, but it was that they would become like God. They would know good and evil and be like God. They aspired to be more than what God had made them. And that was the start of the rebellion. Now, let's just go forward many hundreds of years and look in Isaiah. He talks to us about the king of Babylon, a man who fell because of his pride and rebellion. It says in Isaiah 14, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That was the king of Babylon's aspiration. And he fell. Uh, Traditionally, those words have been applied to the fall of Satan. But historically, as I said, they're understood to be talking about the king of Babylon at the time. And in the mysteries and language of prophecy, they can both be true. Because the king's ambition was very much in Satan's character. And we can see the same very much in the world today, I, I suggest. Another example, Book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel um, 28, it talks about the Prince of Tyre. And it says, uh, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. And God says, but you're you're, you're a man and you are no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. So that's, again, another um, example. Daniel. Daniel talks about the king of um, King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, who fell because of his pride and rebellion. And then a bit later in Daniel, um, Daniel um, goes on to talk about the rebellion of a person who will exalt himself in the Holy of Holies. And in chapter 11 of Daniel, it says, The king shall do as he wills. He will exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods and he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. And it, it goes on to talk a lot about what this, this, um, this, this person will do. And many people think that these prophecies are referring to something which happened a long time ago, um, before Christ. There was a Syrian king who desecrated the temple, and he entered the Holy of Holies, and he built an altar to Zeus on the altar of burnt offering, and he sacrificed a pig on it. Um, and that there's lots in Jewish language describing this abomination that happened in the temple. But Jesus, if that if there was any fulfilment of that prophecy um, by the Syrian king, many years later, Jesus picks up Daniel's language in Matthew 24, and he's describing someone else who would create further abominations in the future. And the language of Thessalonians is is similar. So there's, I mean, I'm, I'm just throwing out a lot of scriptures at you there I don't expect you to remember all of that language and prophetic language is always hard to read but my point is just that we can see a theme of rebellion throughout the scripture I've only quoted a few of many many examples that we could have looked at we only have to look at the history of of God's people to see um, countless examples of rebellion rebellion where where human beings have sought to exalt themselves to a, a higher place than God had given them and what Paul is teaching is that although this rebellion will reach a climax at the end of time, it's something that we can recognize in the world now. So what about the world as we know it? What about the world today? And uh, can, we, can we see evidence of the, that rebellious attitude in more, in more recent and current day people? It's not hard, is it? Um, over the last hundred years, people like Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, and and many others have all been thought, you know, quite seriously to be the Antichrist because of the things that they've done. And even in the politics of today, powerful leaders of various countries like China and Russia and North Korea and Myanmar, and even the USA, so-called. Um, Christian country within God we trust on its on its currency. Uh, Leaders of all these types of countries have shown more ego than humility in the way they've gone about their roles. Um, And people have wondered, people have been caused to wonder what role leaders like these might play in the rollout of of prophetic events. But we don't need to look just to world leaders, do we? we can often see human rebellion in the lives of ordinary people. Maybe when we look even inside we can know that we've felt rebellious and um, at times in our lives maybe. Um, have you ever heard the poem Invictus? There's a poem um, titled Invictus, it's quite a famous poem or at least the last two lines of it I think are the most well known of it. Um, and they They describe human rebelliousness, I think, really quite well. Um, A belief in the power of humanity, a belief in the determination of human will, which in some ways might appear impressive, and actually in some ways it really is, but not when we recognise that it's an attitude which completely excludes the Lord. Let me just read this little little poem to you and see if you can recognise the rebellious attitude, because actually part of this... And skill that Paul wants us to learn is to recognise things that are trying to deceive us in one way or another, and sometimes um, putting forward ideas which appear impressive and um, um, aspirations or attitudes to life which appear to be um, worthy are things that maybe we should recognise if there is anything anti-God or um, (laughs) pro-human. In it that is inappropriate. Let's see what you think of this um, this little poem. Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutches of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gates, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those last two lines, which are the ones which are kind of more famous from that uh, that poem called Invictus but it is it's a, a testimony I think to the to the human spirit which excludes God and a confidence in human ability what can we take from all of this we're living in a world which is ripe for the ultimate showdown between good and evil I guess that would be maybe the um, the, the pessimistic and the true um, sort of heading that you could put over all of this. And it's not a new thing. It's been there since the beginning, a, a brooding satanic influence, which sometimes is stirring us in the face, and other times it's subtly and cleverly weaving itself into the fabric of our everyday lives. And the church, Christians, we're not immune to this influence. We live in this fallen world. We're influenced every day by a hundred and one things things which are man-made, selling as products, selling as ideas, casting doubt on things which are important to our faith. And Paul is saying, don't be deceived. It's easier said than done. Um, The latter part of that passage talks about when the lawless one comes, he will come with all sorts of displays of power, signs and wonders, things which are impressive. And we don't know what they be, but the what they'll be, but the result will be deception. And it might be displays of supernatural power, but it could just be amazing accomplishments that we think are, are actually really good. <laughs> you know, It could be uh, cures to incurable diseases. It could be peacemaking between nations, solving the climate pri- um, crisis, um, ending world poverty, things like that. Uh, in other words, the more impressed we are with someone, the easier it is for us to be deceived. And that can be true in much smaller ways in our everyday lives as well. So I said at the beginning that I didn't find this a very uplifting passage. Uh, It's all doom and gloom, isn't it? It's uh, basically saying that it might be bad now, but it's going to get much worse. Oh, and by the way, guys, it's actually much worse than you you already realise, because Satan's got such a strong grip on the world, working secretly in the background in ways that we often don't don't realise. So I'd like to finish, if I might, by summarizing what I think are the encouraging takeaways from this passage, because they're in there. They're definitely in there. We have got some encouraging things that we can we can take away, and I think they're probably the things to remember more than, than all of the, all of the terrible things I've been talking about. But firstly, you know, the most powerful image in this passage isn't actually what Satan does. It's what the Lord is going to do. In one verse, Verse 8, despite all Satan's power, the Lord Jesus is going to overthrow him. Verse 8, the Lord One will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. That's amazing, isn't it? And secondly, we have the encouragement that God is in control. Despite all the adversaries, hidden ways and the fallen condition of human beings, which often makes us such willing accomplices, the rebellion is being held back. God won't let anything happen before it's appointed time. Thirdly, we might have a role to play in that. You know, Christian opposition to wrongdoing may or may not be part of the, the holding back that Paul's talking about here. But regardless of that... Knowing the truth of the gospel as we do, it gives us a great opportunity to do something about it, doesn't it? To speak the truth and to live the truth rather than living the lie that verses 9 and 10 talks about. And that brings me to the point in verse 10, uh, the importance of the truth as an antidote to deception. You know, you know, Ephesians 6 says it's part of the armor of God to protect us from in the um in in spiritual warfare the the the, um the belt of truth you remember what the first deception in the garden of eden was it was to question what god had said so the more we know about what god has really said the less likely we are to be led astray and of course we find that knowledge in the word of god don't we can i just add to that point that i'm not talking here about knowing more in the sense that we should be constantly searching our bibles for new revelations Or trying to find things that God hasn't made obvious in his word. I'm talking about knowing the basics and knowing them with more certainty. Revising them and meditating on them. So we don't do what the Thessalonians have done. We don't forget what we've been told. We don't forget what we already knew. In verse 5, the encouragement of them was simply to remember. And the final point I'd like to make is never to give up hope for those we love, whose salvation status is unclear. There's a troubling bit at the end of the passage, isn't there? But we know from 1 Timothy 2 and 4 that the Lord wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we have to read the last few verses of our passage in that context, where it says in verse 10 that... There are um, people who will perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And then it goes on to say God will send them a powerful delusion so that they believe the lie. I think it must be, we must read that in a similar way to the way we read Exodus and what God did with Pharaoh. It says there that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it also says that Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. God hardened a hard heart. And in our passage, I think it's saying that God is going to do the same to those who have refused the gospel and those who delight in wickedness. So, yes, I think this is saying that comes the point when God, regard, when God regards a person's informed decision as final. But as we know, love is patient and love is kind. And I think the love of God constrains him to give time to everyone who will. Be held accountable for that decision so they have the opportunity to hear and understand we can give them that opportunity can't we and until then there is always there is always hope so my time is gone let me just very very briefly just summarize those 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 last few um encouraging points because i think i really do want them to be the things we remember from the passage number one despite all satan's power the lord jesus will overthrow him Number two, no matter what is happening in the world, God is in control. Three, in a world of lies and deception, we have the opportunity to be lights in the darkness, to speak the truth and live the truth as a witness to those around us. Four, to do that, we do need to ensure that we're not deceived by the lie ourselves. And and the best way to do that is to ensure that we know the truth, which highlights the importance of God's word. And my final point was simply... Uh, to never give up hope for those who have not yet accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. The Lord wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of that truth so that they also will not be deceived and receive the salvation gift that he wants to give them. Okay.